welcome to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast with your hosts, Jeremy Thake and Paul Schaeflein. Each week, you'll catch us speaking to expert developers about new tech, lessons learned, and opinions in this space. Hi, Paul. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good, man. We've had a few skipped shows. Apologies for the listeners who are avidly waiting for our next episode, but things happen. Life moves on, Life, but the last uh, the last of my kids is married off, so Woo-hoo. off we go. There we go. Yeah, so that, that's my excuse. Plus the holiday. Have you changed the locks? <laughs> well, they can come back with the grandkids. <laughs> <laughs> just do what my brother does and just drops them off and leaves them for there for like three days and has vacation. It's like the dream. So, what have you been up to? Are you still coding heavy and? teams and yes yeah well that's a, a product release things gone out in the last month yes uh in a, in all kinds of platforms <laughs> web and sharepoint and teams and all kinds of stuff yeah so it's been kind of nuts and uh of course nothing nothing like onboarding half a dozen customers to figure out where the rough edges are in your product right so <laughs> off you go <laughs> whacking <laughs> bugs <laughs> yeah yeah testing away yeah yeah and onboarding new devs at the same time so it's it's fun but uh, yeah it's all good what do you do for uh CI CD pipeline are you using Azure DevOps and all these we people are using come on? Azure DevOps yes yes that's cool yes yeah works great um, it's uh, you know obviously I have to say thank you to all the past guests on the show between Azure DevOps and Azure and SharePoint so a lot of those tidbits that we've picked up over the years if you've been listening like I have uh, a lot of those things have rolled into our pipeline as well so uh, all the way from deploying stuff in Azure and updating code and setting environment settings and and updating Key Vault and on the whole kit and caboodle. So, yeah, it's pretty good. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it makes it easier for you to onboard new devs for sure. And on that, did you notice uh, the news around the Microsoft Teams bots in multi-geo environments? I had not heard that term before. Yeah, I had not heard the term multi-geo before, but there has been documentation since uh, the first time I wrote a bot that they said, by the way, you know, you're going to get a message and that message has a, a service endpoint and you should use that service endpoint when you reply. And the SDK does it all for you. So it's really only if you're doing something kind of crazy that this is an issue. But yeah, so the blog post that Jeremy's referring to is that they've announced multi-geo uh, bot, which I presume is probably to help with the multi, with the, the the rapid growth of the Teams service as well, but it's it's quite possible now that you could get a message to your web service from two different uh, bot framework hosts in different regions, and you need to reply to the same one. So in the bat, it, before everyone, you know, you would you would make a call to the bot framework. You know, it's a well known address, right? Everyone sees this address. Well, it's quite possible that the the incoming message could have a different service URL. Like or even even better, every message could be different. In theory, right? If I could I could send a message to the North American endpoint, and I get a reply from the UK endpoint because maybe Microsoft routed traffic or who knows, right? But the point here, of course, is when you get a message, it has a service URL, and if you're going to reply, you reply to that same service URL in order to keep the the affinity. So um, yeah, pretty good. But like I said, I did a quick glance in my code, and I just used the bot. F- framework SDK and say, reply to a message and it just works. So most folks shouldn't have an issue, at least the C-sharp folks. I, I can't speak to, to, to non-C-sharp, but yeah. Yeah, if you're like rolling your own without using their stuff. But um, worth having a read if you're doing anything with bots by the sounds of it. So getting the show notes. The other one that's exciting from a team's perspective is um, the Microsoft Graph Toolkit team. Beth Pan and Elise and Nicola and all those folks, um, they announced a new authentication provider for 
teams uh, that kind of improves the auth experience uh, when you're building Teams apps using the Teams provider. Uh, there was a whole like community discussion around what we should call it because the original one was called the Teams Provider, assuming that it would never change. It was like, do we call it the Teams Provider too? Or the there was all sorts of weird connotations. And it was actually kind of interesting that we opened it up to the community to decide because there was enough healthy discussion internally about what we should do with it. And I think Elise was like, let's just broaden it to make sure we get everyone's opinions from like a diverse perspective. And so it went with Teams MSL2 Provider, which because it's the MSL2 um, it's using now rather than um, the other approach. Yeah, it's uh, a lot more streamlined, which is nice. And they've got migration steps in here and what that means. So if you are using the toolkit already and you're building stuff in Teams, definitely go and upgrade that. And then the other thing, which is really, really cool, is they now have a file upload file list component, um, which actually supports uh, drag and drop, which is really, really neat. And, and so that's kind of cool that... Uh, you know, there's more components coming out around the files uh, blueprints that we talk about around Microsoft Graph. So if you're doing anything with one OneDrive and you're building things inside of Teams or even a standard web app, you've now got an easy way of having a list of files mapped to a document library or folder and the ability for your users to kind of click the upload button or even just drag and drop straight on there. Yeah, excellent stuff. And and I just want to reiterate, if you're using the older auth providers, stop. Fair. <laughs> uh, the key thing that you glossed over, but the this new one uh, implements the PKCE OAuth 2 code, uh, OAuth 2 flow, which replaces implicit flow. Implicit flow is really not as secure as you want. So move your code. It, it's uh, certainly worth it. And uh, there's still some difficulties in setting up the Teams SSO with, although the, 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 the tab one's not as bad as the bot one, but I'm, see, I'm seeing chatter how that's going to be improved as well. So certainly get on board, folks. It's, it's much worth it. And your end users will love it too. They don't have to log in every time. And what did you find? Is uh, anything else you've noticed on the blogosphere this week? Yeah, well, kind of the, the in the last uh, couple of weeks, the the Viva Connections uh, messaging has gotten louder and louder, and we're going to link to a blog post from Andy Hayon, who is in the SharePoint organization. Andy is a PPM. I'm, I'm not sure. Sorry, Andy, if I've screwed up your I don't know what your title is, but I know he's uh, does a lot of the the project management and stuff, and he's gone through the different Viva Connections public preview announcement. There's the mobile app experience and the desktop experience and the dashboard web part and uh, have, have got screenshots to help out. Have, there's even more in there, right? So this stuff is available now in a public preview. The key thing for developers, right? You're going to write a connections uh, card, uh, share SPFX extension. It shows up in the dashboard web part and then in the dashboard in the in the Viva Connections app. Paul's a little confused as to what's desktop and what's Teams and what's mobile, but but for us developers, it's public preview when you you write your extensions and you you render the card. It, it, that stuff's now your end users can now see it without running the magic code word to see the special site that that, that supported the dev preview. We should um, get someone on to talk about it because I think from a dev perspective, it's, it's interesting to understand the direction of where they're going with this stuff because that screenshot looks like Teams. Uh, for the desktop client, but I was only understanding that it was a stand. It wasn't Teams, and if you look, if you zoom in, it isn't conversations and Teams and I open that thing every day, and I can't remember what the other side rails are called. Calendar and calls and files, they're different. So it does look like it's its own desktop app. So we should get someone on because I'd like to learn myself to make sure I'm across all this stuff as 
they kind of push forward there. But um, the mobile app is a great kind of idea of like almost like an intro in your pocket, I guess, is the way they probably don't want me terming it because it's probably, they don't want to call it that and live to their Viva Connections brand. But effectively, that's what it is with the dashboard, with the web parts and the feeds and the, all the resources, links and so forth. So definitely go check that out. It's extremely popular and there's a huge investment internally. I see more and more organization org charts in Microsoft tagging itself to this Viva world. So um, be sure to see some a lot more of this coming through, I think. Yeah, to, to me, the Viva message is very scattered because there's multiple components to the product and, and some of them I don't care about, right? I don't do learning, so I don't focus on it. But the dashboard bits and the cards, I think, are killer. If you're a developer with an internal app, SV, or you want to get data in front of folks in your organization, that's the way to go. And so, yeah, I agree. Certainly get on board. And actually, um, on that, if you saw the Universal Actions announcements uh, build that was in the session I did, please reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, I We're about to start a new um, incubation, a private preview of some new Universal Action stuff coming through. Um, it allows you to build like adaptive cards, not just in Outlook, um, but in the search experience and in Teams as well. And uh, we, our engineering team and Fabian Williams in my team actually is driving this new private preview of incubation of the next wave of things coming through on that. So if you're doing work with that um, and you aren't already aware, uh, for those listening, Paul is standing and jumping like a kid in a candy store going, me, me, pick me, pick me. Yeah, we can definitely reach out and get you involved in that. Now, from the community side, Marcus Moller is just on fire as a blogger right now with his toolkit stuff. He's talking about Teams applications and SSO and using Yo Teams, which is an open source uh, command line toolkit that was Victor Willen's creation. I believe he's still maintaining it, even though he's now working at Microsoft. But I do think that there are other people involved in that now, right? Yeah, yeah. Th- there was there was a release, a uh, preview release just this week, and I, I think it includes some input from uh, Marcus as well. Yeah, yeah. So hot reload is one of the bits in there too. Yeah. Um. So he's got a post here talking about the Teams provider. So we'll have to let him know that Teams provider is the old version of the Teams provider, and he used to use a Teams MSL two provider. It talks about how you can um, inject that into the project structure that the uh, Yo Teams creates to allow you to do the signing control with SSO um, inside of a Teams app, which is really, really cool because he, like with everything Marcus does, it's all like end-to-end, step-by-step, you know, here's the command, here's the code, um, which is really, really great to follow. And actually, I, I apologize to Marcus. At the bottom, he actually explains that there is a new Teams MSL2 provider for SSO, um, where he kind of talks about the attorney if you don't want to use the Teams provider. But strongly encourage you to use a Teams MSL2 provider because of the things we mentioned previously in the in that announcement. So thanks again, Marcus, for all your work on blogging, all that stuff. Yes, thank you so much. <laughs> but it's probably you're just going to go use that verbatim for your code now, right? Well, yeah, maybe. <laughs> because in Teams tabs <laughs> is where I think the toolkit is going to shine because if I'm in that, if I'm in SharePoint, SPFX control. Well, uh, it's just how do I make things look like every, the rest of the world, right? And so, when you get in Teams, the the fluent UI, North Star bits that are deprecated are still hard to find. And toolkit's the way to go, I think. There. Do you find another post from one of our old school heroes of the MVP circuit? 
Oh, absolutely. See, uh, following his, uh, the Chris O'Brien has got a new one here. And this kind of ties into what you were talking about before. He, he's got an article that is uh, customizing search result types and verticals. And, and those are a couple of terms that we used to use on-prem for search service with the result types and verticals and the navigation and so on. And so Chris is walking through this in context of SharePoint Online. And I'm sure it's got something to do with the connectors that we've talked about repeatedly <laughs> Uh, to help get stuff going on in your data in search. And he even mentions how uh, th there's some chat about Viva Topics using some of this information as well. And so uh, obviously it's built on search. And so being able to customize the verticals and or the results is certainly worthwhile. And so Chris has got, the, he switched to dark mode apparently on one of his uh, computers because this this blog post has got a lot of dark mode screens. But uh, it's uh, from my point of view, it's great to see I end up search results looking like something, you know, if I, if I have a specific type of data and it, I don't want it to look like just a, a web link, I can customize that using this capability and perfect. Love it. Love it. Love it. So thanks, Chris, for doing that. That's awesome. Uh, as usual, his blog's very detailed, lots of screenshots, dark mode for sure. He's joined the call club, still not in the call club. And then you found another one from um, John Gallant, who I... Maybe I haven't seen around the traps for so long, but maybe I've just not been paying too much attention to what he's been focused on. Likewise, um, John's doing a lot of work in that .NET space. And so I came across a tweet and ended up finding on his blog, he's got a whole series. He's titled it Azure Identity 101, 201, et cetera. So these are small-ish videos and blog posts to accompany those covering he calls Azure identity, but he's talking about the Azure credential and the default, the chained one, using environment variables and so on. And and I think this is relevant as, as we know the, the SDK for .NET and it, and I believe the JavaScript one as well can, can leverage the Azure.identity token credential to do login instead of the crazy auth providers we had back in the day. And so if you're still struggling to see what this Azure identity token credential bit is all about. Here's some great snippets for you to go uh, learn starting at 101 and we're getting to be more advanced uh, from from John who's been around for quite some time in the in the .NET space and nice to see. Yeah, I don't think I've seen him speaking so long either. So I'm probably gonna have to add these to my learning list to see uh, what he's been working on. I know Daryl spends a lot of time with that team because they're trying to align what is happening in the Azure SDK world to the M365 SDK world. So. It's always interesting hearing from Daryl where they're going and how we're aligning. Hey, the token credential stuff is great. I have to admit, I, I stole some of the code out of the SDK and customized it to support our scenario. But uh, with the, we're going with the uh, with the token credential stuff is excellent stuff. It works just great. As I said, we onboarded a new developer, made sure he set up his Visual Studio connection to Azure just fine. When he presses F5, boom, he's connected in. Uh, he can't read the production secrets because he's a developer. I have trouble reading the production secrets with my main code because I'm a developer and, and it works just like you'd expect. So highly recommended to get up to speed on that. Yeah, yeah. That's really Cool. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot. And this week we have Orion on um, and uh, we're going to have a few more presenters coming through. If there's something you want to talk about, we could probably get Chris O'Brien on at some point. It's been forever since we've got him on. Please reach out to myself or Paul and we can schedule you to come on the podcast and uh, have a good week, everybody. Right. See you.
Hey, so I'm here with Paul today with uh, Orion O'Malley, who's with us out of- You're in Redmond, right? Well, like as in Washington State, you're local in the office. Correct. I'm a Seattle native, but I actually live probably about an hour away from the, the office itself. Oh, so you're like properly from Washington as well. Look at that. Correct. Yep. Born and raised. So what was it like before Red- Microsoft descended on you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, Microsoft has been a presence here for a long time. So, you know, it's, it's hard to remember what life was like before it. I think just the domination of like all of the big tech companies like Bell, you know, I've got seen photos of Bellevue where it just doesn't look anything like it does now. But I think every city has that thing like Perth where I lived in Western Australia was the same, right? Like it's every time I go back there, I'm like, wow, there's another skyscraper here. This is crazy. How long have you been at Microsoft for? So I think I'm I'm just coming up on my my 14 month anniversary. So not not the not the entire length of my career. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And so, for for the, your entire time at Microsoft, you've been working in this app compliance team, right? That's correct. That's correct. So, I got hired on specifically for the app compliance program um, and within that specifically for the Microsoft 365 certification. Just out of interest, what, how did do you apply that to previous experience? Were you at another tech company doing something similar or was this a kind of a bit of a, a change from you from a PM side? Uh, I mean, I think it, it, there was definitely some crossover. So, before this, I was a tech consultant. Um, working in risk and IT risk specifically. So, you know, working with apps and, and making sure that they stay secure is kind of all within the same wheelhouse. That's really cool. Yeah. And um, I, I've loved working with your team. Um, it's fun to have those weekly calls where we're kind of working out how we can uh, get partners and ISVs involved in this app compliance program. And I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, Paul, do you know about this app compliance program? No. I, I know that there is some form to fill out that to register as a vendor or not a vendor as a as a ISV to in the Azure AD for my uh, my partner MPN ID I go somewhere in there and then it shows up that I'm in some type of partner program but that's about the extent of my knowledge on that because like many developers I get some requirements and if there's a security requirement it's at the bottom of the pay of the last page right so uh, <laughs> this is very timely. Uh, topic for me as well to learn what it is Microsoft's expectations are in this world and, and what we can do. Yeah, and, and to me, this is just really exciting, the focus that Microsoft has had on this and the amount of meetings I'm on now with the elevation I'm at now, it's incredible the focus on this, you know, with the fact of like being so concerned about customer data and uh, making sure, you know, if there's things plugging into M365 that you know, they're doing the right things by it. So, Orion, from that perspective, do you want to take us through that, like, to Paul's point, there are a few stages of being compliant, right? That how, how do you explain that journey if, if someone's built software and, as Paul said, they're in Partner Center, they've got an NPM ID, maybe they're an app source in, in our marketplace, but what are the levels that you consider from a compliance perspective? There's kind of two different parts to our program. Um, the first part is the publisher verification. And this is something that's a really quick, easy process to do. Actually, all it really involves is associating your AAD app registration ID to the MPN account where your app is published. And what we do is we basically just perform you know, kind of like a, a verification of the publisher. And then once those two things are linked, a little blue check mark appears next to AAD consent prompts when someone you know goes to deploy an application. And the idea being basically right, if you're if you're using an app, you want to know that 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 it was actually built by the developer that it says it was, and not just some you know fraudulent actor trying to convince you to to deploy that app. 
So on the flip side of that, if you're not verified, when you see consent screens for like group read, write all or user.read or user.read write, essentially it will say unverified publisher. And you know that doesn't mean you shouldn't consent in all cases. Like if you've built your own application that's a single tenant app, you know you build it, you trust it, you can consent it. Or in some cases where people are sideloading apps that you know have come from a publisher you've been working with, that's fine. But where that unverified thing is a red flag is if you don't really know, and maybe the app name is called like something very commonly known and it's not actually from that publisher, then you definitely shouldn't be consenting that to access. Um, and so, you know, there's a big push right now to make sure everything's verified inside of uh, M365 if, if from a multi-tenant perspective, if you're an ISV. But what is like the next step up from that? Like what, what can a partner do to further gain trust with customers and uh, not have them hesitate on kind of clicking on that consent box when they're deploying this, either blindly through the app source or another store or, or sideloading? Yeah, so the next step up from that is actually the Microsoft 365 certification. And really what the Microsoft 365 certification is, is it's a it's a program we design and it's kind of our, our gold standard for security and compliance. Um, and it's designed to give customers, you know, assurance that they can trust an app and by extension of that, that their data will be secured and protected when using an app that is certified. And so how long has this program been in play? So it's been in play for a bit over two years now but it's been slowly expanding. So when it first came into fruition, it was only made available for Teams apps. And then a little while after we expanded to Office add-ins as well as SharePoint apps. And then relatively recently, we also expanded to web apps and any SaaS apps that are published through Microsoft Partner Network. And so how would a, an end user or an admin experience these trusted apps? Like if Paul was wanting to download them into Teams or into Outlook, like what where would they see that they're certified versus not being certified? So we really try to distinguish apps in our, you know, our marketplaces and platforms that are certified from the ones that aren't. So a few different spots are within some of our storefronts. So within App Source, you can see the badge icon and there's actually a little filtering toggle too where you can filter for just certified apps. Um, as well as within the Teams marketplace and the Office Store, um, you will see the certified status of the app. Um, and along with this, we also surface it within admin portals. So within the Teams admin portal, as well as within the Microsoft 365 admin portal, um, the certified status is there as well. Um, and finally, the last place is, so we do have a program site, which is kind of like our Microsoft Docs page. And every app that's been certified gets its own Docs page where we kind of list out uh, some of the compliance and security attributes about them and, and label them as certified. So there's there's a few different places you can go to get that sort of information. And, and so my first big question, right? I get the publisher verification and that's the bit I couldn't remember before because I didn't do it. Someone else at the office did it. But now, so the app is certified. What does that mean? You have to look at my code. I have to do some assertions, a combination of both. What does that entail for a developer? Really what we do is we put the app through an assessment where we vet it against a series of security controls that are derived from some industry leading frameworks like SOC 2, PCI, um, ISO 27001. And we actually request that the ISVs submit evidence to us to ensure that they're meeting each and every one of these controls prior to awarding them the certification. And so, I mean, I remember from my days at Avpoint and Hyperfish, we were already getting demands from most most times our very largest customers to have the SOC 2 and definitely the ISO 27001. 
Um, I hadn't wasn't familiar with the other one actually, but I guess I haven't been. I've been at Microsoft too long now that it's been a while from those discussions. So I guess if you're an ISV already, you may already have some of these, but those are quite involved processes themselves. Uh, like there's a quite a bit of validation and paperwork you have to fill out just to get those three right. Is that is that kind of the feedback you're getting from people that maybe haven't gone through it? Yeah, I mean all all three of those and in, in, in general, just like most you know industry standard frameworks are very rigorous and intensive processes. So I um, mean they're also very expensive. So it's it's oftentimes prohibitively expensive for smaller ISVs to go out and obtain these these independent framework certifications. Yeah, and, and in our cases, in in both times, we had like dedicated PMs driving getting uh, you know the ISO. Uh, twenty-seven thousand one and um, SOC two, and can I remember those take, taking at least three-ish months minimum um, in both cases when I did them. I mean, I agree this is the right thing to do because again, it's all about trust of our customer. Are there are, what other things do you have in place other than those three as like a, a minimum requirement for going through the certification? Are there other areas that you look into outside of what those certifications look for? Yeah, so I, I guess what I should clarify is, you know. We don't require any of those external certifications to get the Microsoft 365 certification. Basically, what it is, is those are kind of the basis for our framework. So, we used some of those and leveraged some of the same things they look at in order to craft the requirements for our, our certification. Ah, uh, I see. Okay. So, you, you'll ask for similar evidence to what they do in theirs, but you don't have to have the the actual certification to get it. You just need to have the same evidence. I guess if you're going to do that and collate the evidence for those things, you may as well go get those certifications as well. Yeah, I think so. The The key selling point for our certification really is just that what we tried to do, our approach was to kind of take the most important things from a security and compliance perspective from each of those three and kind of create one certification that we thought addresses the top concerns of customers. And the key benefit here is that, you know, Microsoft puts its name behind it and that we also cover the cost of it. So, you know, like I said, some of those other certifications are extremely expensive. Um, we really wanted to make the Microsoft 365 certification accessible to companies of all sizes so that ideally every single app within our ecosystem could get a certification. Yeah, that's interesting. And that, that's a good clarification because I was under the impression it was the other way around. So, that okay, I'm learning here in this podcast as usual. How, how do they provide the evidence? Do you, like, is there a system with a checklist and they upload documents that they fill out? Like, what's the approach to it? So, actually, we recently launched our entire certification process end-to-end within Partner Center. So, the same place where an ISV would go to publish their application to our storefront, there's actually a nav bar for app compliance, which you can go to. Um, once you're in there, yeah, the process is pretty standard. So, you know, we give you a set of requirements. Uh, we ask that you upload evidence. We have, you know, a qualified analyst go through and review that um, and, and complete an assessment over it. You know, sometimes we might ask for additional evidence or for some clarification on something um, that you uploaded just to make sure it's meeting the intent of the controls. And once you've, you know, made your way through that and passed all of it, the certification will be, you know, awarded directly within Partner Center and it will start to propagate to all of these other surfaces. And that, that little badge icon will start showing up places. And where are those places, right? So do I have to have something in AppSource or in the team, the various app catalogs for this certification to happen and to be shown? I don't, well, you tell me, yeah, I guess that's where, where I'm going is where else is it have to be an AppSource for this app certification to show up? So AppSource, it, it will always be published in AppSource if your app is published to AppSource, but it will also be reflected in you know various other catalogs we have. So 
um, within the office store, um, within the team store itself. If you click into any app that's certified, that status will be reflected. Okay. And, and so there are some scenarios where we, we package up an application and deliver it to a customer and talk it on the phone. Okay. Click here, click here, click here. Right. So I'm guessing there won't, there won't be any blue checkbox on that app package, so to speak, right? But can, is there at least some page that I can point to and say, go look at the whatever catalog web page that says this is an app that's been certified, even though you don't physically store the media? Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And, and yeah, we do have exactly that. So um, we do create a specific page for every single app that's been through the program. Um, and we even list out, you know, some of the things that we've looked at and some of the security and compliance attributes that the app has, you know, been certified for, as well as its certification status. What's the AKA link for that? I always forget it when people ask me. Um, A good place to start would be aka.ms slash get certified. Uh, okay, that's right. Yeah. And then within the little left-hand nav bar, uh, there are dropdowns. It's it's basically categorized by app type. So there's, you know, Teams apps, SaaS apps, et cetera. Um, and within those dropdowns, you should be able to find the complete inventory of apps that have been through our program. Yeah, right on the left-hand side, I can go like see what Outlook certified apps there are and it just lists them all out. It's funny because I remember um, sitting down with Bill Bliss, who originally built part of this. Bill Bliss, for those that don't know, is like a very senior architect on the Teams platform that put this together originally. And your team's kind of inherited this to broaden it from just being Teams. So it's funny seeing his work still here. Um, after all that time he spent on that, I remember being at an Ignite or a build and he was like sitting on his laptop between sessions, writing the code that built some of this website. So sometimes it just takes the power of one to start these programs off. And here we are with a whole team and experts validating these things. So how long is a certification last, right? If I change the permission requests, because with incremental consent, today I don't need to know anything about you, but tomorrow maybe I do. What, what would cause it to go invalid or out of date? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's in line with most industry standards where it's an annual process. So, regardless of what happens in the interim, um, on a yearly basis, you will be required to go through recertification. Um, but that's actually a great point you bring up because we do have a process for what we call significant change. So, there are a few different criteria, right? Like, you know, incremental consent, if you all of a sudden request a, a whole new set of um, highly privileged permissions, or, you know, if you replatform or something that, you know, constitutes a major impact to your security posture, we do ask that you go through the certification in kind of an ad hoc manner. Um, and we are working on systems to actually detect when those changes have been made. Yeah, I know in the the office store, there's work that, that team did to actually be able to detect those kind of things too. So it's good that we're doing that for the certification as well. So I'm, things like if I was hosted in Azure and now I'm hosted on-prem, that's kind of a, one of those platform things that you think should be uh, revisited? <laughs> is that the kind of stuff you're looking for? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Replatforming is is huge, right? I mean, you're basically taking everything that supports your application and, and moving it and you know everything has to be reconfigured yeah because someone could sneak into your house pool and see your post-it notes your passwords for the server hey those are actually keyboard and- shortcuts <laughs> that haven't come in muscle memory yet <laughs> from, a, from an evidence perspective for things like that like i i'm guessing there's probably things around like key vault if you're using azure and how does someone provide evidence? Are they just sending screenshots of their configurations in the portal or what, how does that happen for someone that's kind of putting together this evidence on those types of questions? Yeah, I mean, there's a few different ways. So, it, you know, in some cases it is screenshots, right? We're just showing us that you have maybe multi-factor authentication enabled um, or showing us that you have like an anti-malware extension installed on all the servers supporting your app. 
Um, in other cases, you know, it might be you providing us the policy document, which, you know, outlines your patch management policy and, and your SLA for patching, which we then cross-reference with, the, you know, a snippet of you actually deploying, you know, a patch within that kind of predefined range. Um, in other cases, it might just be a walkthrough. So a lot of times, you know, our analysts will just get on a call with one of the ISVs and say, hey, uh, please demonstrate this to me. You know, sometimes that's the easiest way. So there's not a, a one set criteria. You know, it, it, it can take a couple different forms as long as we're able to gain confidence that that control is being met. Yeah. Like who has access to the logs, what's being written to the logs when, when you're rolling your passwords. I mean, I can see like encryption protocols on here and if you're using TLS 1.2 and yeah, there's a whole heap of stuff that will get Paul really excited when he takes his product through this for sure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Paul, yeah. <laughs> Paul is our security nut. He, he loves all this stuff. From this side, like obviously this is a lot to educate developers to be doing the right thing and, you know, administrators and end users will see those checkboxes. But what what are you hearing from partners? And, and I'll share what I'm hearing afterwards around like this from a thing. Like, oh, is the market aware of this and already like looking in AppSource and seeing whether people are verified and certified? And what things is your team doing to try and make sure that customers are aware of these things so that they're doing the right thing regardless of what the ISVs are doing to be certified? I think we're scaling. I think that's the answer. I think that, you know, being that this program has kind of slowly expanded its breadth in, you know, which sort of things are in scope for it, um, it's taken us a while to roll that out um, and to kind of generate that sort of awareness. Uh, but I think increasingly we are seeing admins demand this. You know, we get more and more calls from ISVs, you know, coming to us and saying, hey, we need certification so, you know, we can sell to X customer. Or the other way around saying, you know, an ISV that we've worked with saying, hey, you know, this certification is great. It really helped us land um, this deal. Uh, that being said, you know, we are always working to drive awareness. So, you know, a few different things that we're doing right now is, you know, getting slots at some of those big, you know, Microsoft conferences like Ignite and Build. Um, we're also working with our marketing teams to roll out things on all of our various marketing channels, like our, our LinkedIn sites, you know, our, our blog pages, um, as well as, you know, Twitter and, and Facebook and all the other social media ones. Um, and we're also working on creating a set of videos to just kind of educate customers on what that certification is. And because we really think that's where it all starts, right? You know, if the customer demands it, the admin's going to do it. You know, and at the end of the day, you're going to have a more secure ecosystem with more apps that are trustworthy and that have been vetted. Um, so we're really trying to take kind of like every single angle and every single channel to just really push out as much awareness as we can to those admins. Yeah. And I, and I do like the notion, like from my experience working with those two ISVs of, you know, just looking at the other compliance things that are on here, like the HIPAA compliance and FIMRA and COBIT and SOC2 and, you know, the 27001, like those are all things that we were being asked of as a customer before. So the more we can educate customers that this exists and incorporate, encapsulates that, I think that we in a much better space. My experience um, in doing those things was it reduced the sales cycle of working with those larger customers. Because if you had them, you weren't scrambling to go to them. And so, if, you know, for smaller ISVs that maybe have not been through this process yet, proactively having this, if you've got a big deal on the table and this comes up once they're ready to purchase and they go through some kind of security overview, which typically happens at the end of the sales process and not near the beginning, um, it is good to be proactive on these things and have this in place to be able to, da -da, I have this and write the check now, we're good to go, we can deploy it and get this going in the customer site. And so that's, that's kind of neat. 
And then, I mean, Paul, have, have you experienced any of this with the customer base that you talk to? I mean, obviously, you, I don't know how far and wide you go with your uh, where your customers are based, for instance, because some of these certifications are very American orientated. Yeah, well, so first of all, let me say they, I don't talk to customers because uh, they don't trust me to say the right thing. <laughs> I, I like to joke around, but the, um, yeah. So, so the customers are far and wide, and there have been UK finance rules that come through uh, uh, these buzzwords or these industry certifications don't ring a bell to me. So I haven't seen those. But as we said before, right? It it, it kind of depends on on the customer base and most of the UK customers that I'm dealing with. Like I said, the the installation process it, it it's happening it. In real time, we're on the on a team's call together. They're not just going to the app store and say downloading some random piece of software, installing it in a tenant. So there's kind of a built-in trust there ahead of time, right? So it's not just some fly-by-night, oh, click here and off we go type of thing. And and that's kind of, you know, part of this this public. I'm looking through the certification list and things going through. Well, penetration testing. Well, if I have an SPFX web part, how do I penetrate test that? I can't. So that's something that doesn't apply. But maybe it needs to be. So there's a lot of unknown there for. A developer, and I think this really, I, based on my review of this guide, it doesn't seem like it's just something you're going to have the guy who's writing code work on. It's more of an ISV organizational effort, right? To say what's the architect talking about, who's hosting it, are we making changes, and 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 that kind of thing. So to answer your question, I don't see a lot of this here, but then again, it could be that it's already taken care of before it gets to me, right? It, it being you know more of the architect developer side instead of the customer engagement side. Yeah. And, you know, Paul, actually, I think you touched on an important point there, right? Is that security is, it's it's multidimensional, right? Like on one end, it's making sure that you have secure development and deployment practices and making sure, you know, you're doing all the things when you're actually writing the code that make for secure software. But then the other piece of it is the operational side, right? Which makes sure that you're patching things, making sure that you're monitoring things and reviewing them and, and having, a, you know, a method and a, and a process in place for dealing with incidents and things like that. So, you know, there's a whole there's a whole dimension to security that comes kind of after the code's written. And, and, and that's honestly and equally as important. What's amazing here, and I won't name names just because it's unfair to call out one particular company, but there are some significantly large ISVs on here that are global ISVs that don't have some of these SOC 2s and uh, FINRAs and HIPAAs. And it's kind of amazing. And so I think, you know, it's on us as Microsoft to try and encourage people to do this, but it's also on customers to be aware that they should be asking these things. Like, you know, th- this is standard stuff in a large company, but maybe if someone's listening and they're a mid to a mid-sized company, you know, th- there's a lot of risk associated here and just being aware and asking these right questions is good. And I think this is where this certification program is great because, you know, Microsoft's doing it on behalf of every customer that might go through this validation process with a partner, which is Nate. Yeah. So I know Ryan's the guest here, but let me just re- reply to that. So there's two sides to this coin. Number one, a lot of my to-do list gets driven by customer requests. So to your point, Jeremy, yes, if customers say, I want this, it's likely to happen. Fair. But on the other hand, depending on who's acquiring the software, some smaller companies, the person buying the software isn't always a secu- chief security officer at, at their organization. And I need to get something done so that I can can make my customers happy. Right, right. If they don't know that certification is a thing, they're not going to ask. So it's kind of, it's not just getting, 
you know, ISVs on board to do this. It's really getting the message to Betty in accounting who's buying an app because she needs to schedule the company picnic. Type Correct. Of, <laughs> type of thing. Right. And and yeah. likely the the admin that's going to click the button to deploy it is the, the one that we need to make sure knows about this the most and is educated on it. Yeah. So, it, I think, it, we're, we're, as Orion said, that the journey has started and obviously this podcast is an exa- another example of it. What's interesting, Orion, as an example, uh, I noticed MSIT now is – has this as part of the their own internal validation for what gets deployed inside of our own M365 tenant. Can you talk a little bit about that and what we've learned there? Microsoft has been on its own journey internally, uh, you know, over the last, just like every other company out there, you know, over the last year or two to try to decide, you know, what, what our stance should be on, you know, third-party apps and, and allowing different apps in our, in our ecosystem and within our own internal tenant. Um, and it's been an evolving discussion. And I think, there's a lot to consider um, because on one hand, right, you never want to hinder productivity, right? And there's a lot of these great apps out there which provide real value to employees and which they use regularly. But at the other side of it, you know, you don't want to expose yourself to unnecessary risk by allowing these, you know, apps from unverified developers to just exist within your tenant and absorb your own tenant data. So what we recently kind of came to was that the certification is now going to be a part of that workflow. So, you know, when someone, some end user wants to use one of the apps um, and it starts to go through our procurement process and our kind of like security review process, uh, certification will be, you know, a piece of that process. It's definitely been an evolving discussion. And I think this is, you know, a, a really recent development. So, it's that's pretty exciting for us. Yeah, no, that's great. And I think, you know, a lot of the times where we do this, we call them EBCs, executive briefing center meetings with CIOs and CTOs of the big companies. Like the two most common questions we get, one is, how did you build the graph so we can build our own graph internally, which is like a, you know, I've got 50 internal systems. I want one API for all those 50 internal systems. And then the second question I always get in EBC is specifically around what do you do at Microsoft to validate apps before you allow them to be deployed into your environment? You know, I think this this will help with that standardization if, you know, we're telling big customers, this is what we do, that they'll all be on board with that certification as well. So I, I think all this to be said is that, whether you're a, a small, medium, large software company right now, whether you're an admin, I think get educated on this stuff and be aware and you know have this on the radar of like top of mind with your architects and you know the VPs in your company to let them know that whether this hits you today or in six months or a year that um, having this on your to-do list proactively rather than as Paul said, like Wes is going to come screaming at you, Paul, like we need to get the certification done and wait, you went on the podcast with Orion and you didn't know about this and you didn't tell me six months ago. <laughs> like you, you can earn some brownie brownie points here with Wes on being ahead of the game here. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, the other thing that, that strikes me and just everyone should go review this guide because even if you're not getting certified, right? you know, notification of a intrusion detection, right? So I, are you hosted in Azure? Azure has Azure Monitor. Are you running it? It's not hard to turn it on. I mean, yeah, yeah. even if you're not getting certified, there's certainly a lot of value in there. But now the other the other question, and this may be premature outside your scope, Ryan, I know there's a push underfoot about doing uh, validating like the, the developer package chain, right? Either NPM or NuGet packages. What just random code being injected into those, and I don't know any because I I set I set a reference to a library and I use it. Does, does your certification kind of touch on that, or is that still not yet in in scope of what you're thinking of doing? 
Uh, I would say it's probably not directly in scope. I mean, we do have some things that are kind of tangential to that. Uh, you know, for example, one of the requirements of the certification is that, you know, you, you list out all of your, you know, internal dependencies and you make sure that they get patched and so you're never using some sort of, you know, unsupported third-party dependency. I, I don't know if that directly addresses. Yeah, yeah. Now, there is some work going on in the tooling for like the Teams dev toolkit where that will start doing those kind of checks and flag on your behalf, hey, look, you're using an NPM package that, you know, has got huge security risks. Please don't use this. And so, you know, Microsoft's taking this from various different angles to try and help you do the right thing uh, when you're when you're building, for sure. Yeah, it's a bit daunting if you do NPM install and you <laughs> and it downloads yeah. 325 packages. Right, like, oh my right, gosh, right. I don't know what any of those are. And so, I guess that's kind yeah. of the concern that I have. And obviously, you think twice before setting a, a dependency, but even, and, and to be fair, sometimes SPFX has all these dependencies, but that's for my local dev machine, just so that I can press F5 and debug it, right? Not right, necessarily right, ship right. the code. So, um, I think it's certainly worthwhile. And any any guidance or, or any information you guys come across that is certainly going to be appreciated by by devs as well, for, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point. You know, you mentioned the AKA link aka.ms slash get certified. Is that kind of the best call to action for people listening that want to go go, on, go learn more, Aaron? Yeah, I think that's a really good starting point. I think that's that's kind of our, our central hub for documentation, publicly facing documentation about the program. Um, that being said, we do also have an alias, which you can reach out to if you ever have any questions. And that's appcert, A-P-P-C-E-R-T at microsoft.com. Um, and if you ever have a question or you're interested in getting started, um, you can definitely fire off an email there and, and someone from our team will be glad to help you get started. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, look, I appreciate you coming on. I think that was great. I definitely learned some things I wasn't aware of on this. So thank you. And um, we, what we should do is probably get you on in a few months time and, and see what progressions we've made in terms of where this stuff lights up and what new content you've got and um, any kind of war stories. It'd be kind of good to get a partner on to talk about their journey through it too. I think that'd be useful. Exactly. What I was thinking any listener who's been through the process, we'd love to, to get you on and, and talk through about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know for a fact, Cameron from One Place Solutions has, has been through it. So maybe we should reach out to Cameron because he's been on the show from a very technical scenario, but it'd be nice to get him on from this scenario as yeah. well. And to your point about raising awareness, right? So yeah, I did interview him on the show and I didn't even cross my mind to talk about certification yeah, because, right. you know, I'm a, I'm a geek and talking about code and it doesn't. So I guess uh, raising that consciousness is certainly worthwhile. Yeah. And I, I do think from my own personal experiences of going through some of those things like SOC 2 and COVID and, and so forth, uh, FINRA, and it actually was a good learning exercise for me on making sure we're doing the right thing when we're doing production environments. And and sometimes it can be peace of mind. Like you might think you're doing the right thing, but when you start seeing these certifications and seeing the questions they're asking, you're like, I actually don't know. Like maybe we're doing it. We don't realize Azure's doing it for us. Just having that peace of mind is actually a good thing because the last thing you want for your software company is it to be breached. And there were simple things you could have checked on that could have saved you from being breached. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's a, a way of us protecting our own customer data, but it's a way of you protecting your business and your reputation and trust with customers as well. So, yeah, I appreciate, Orion, all the work that your team does on this. I think it's a great way to keep the trust going in our ecosystem. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us on. You know, like we said, it's, you know, every little bit of awareness we can get helps. We have heavy aspirations for the program. So it's, it's going to be a marathon, not a sprint. So really appreciate your guys' time. Excellent. All right. Well, have a good weekend, everyone. And um, well, catch you on the other side.
thanks for listening to the Microsoft 365 Developer Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter at M365DevPodcast and check out our show notes at www.m365devpodcast.com. To help us spread the word, we'd really appreciate it if you could retweet our episode tweets and give us a review on iTunes. That's all, folks. 